Hello, this is Pastor Ryan Brown, and you are listening to the Aroma of Christ, sermons from the pulpit of the Fostoria Baptist Church. Let's get started. Our scripture reading for this Mother's Day is Psalm 131. In Psalm 131, David is commenting on how there are some things that he isn't certain about in the world. But instead of occupying himself with those things that are proud, those things that are high and lofty, instead of looking at those great matters, he instead is content as a worshiper in the presence of the Lord. And the image he uses to describe that is an image that he is behaving himself, that he is content in the presence of the Lord like a weaned child is content with his or her mother. A child who's weaned no longer needs anything from the mother in terms of milk, but still desires to be in the gentle, caring presence of the mother, and is content not getting anything from her, but simply being there. So too, as we hope in the Lord and as we wait for him, we should be with him like a weaned child with his mother, content just to be in his presence. Psalm 131, a song of degrees of David. Lord, my heart is not haughty, nor mine eye is lofty. Neither do I exercise myself in great matters or in things too high for me. Surely I have behaved and quieted myself. As a child that is weaned of his mother, my soul is even as a weaned child. Let Israel hope in the Lord from henceforth and forever. So we here are in Matthew 9, 18. In relationship to Jesus' authority, we've not just seen it displayed, we've also seen Matthew kind of show us that the type of authority on display requires immediate and complete obedience. Seen that in the verses of chapter 8, verses 18 through 22. The excuses about delaying aren't standing. And even saw it in the fact that all can come. And there's a newness in Matthew 9, 9 to 17. But now we begin our Nas section as Matthew 9, verse 18. While he spake these things unto them, behold, there came a certain ruler and worshipped him, saying, My daughter is even now dead. But come and lay thy hand upon her, and she shall live. And Jesus arose and followed him, and so did his disciples. Father, we do ask that you would help us think through all of this passage today. Help us to rejoice in the grace that you have, the authority of Jesus to forgive sins, the authority of Jesus on display in his healing ministry. I ask that you would be honored, that you would be praised and glorified in how we rejoice in this reality during this sermon and throughout this week. 
And help us to live in light of the beauty of the gospel and the beauty of your word. And so, Lord, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. There's an old poem that tells a story. This poem has since been turned into a song. It talks about an old violin. It's in fact, one of its titles is the old violin. That's battered and scarred. It's being sold at auction, and the auctioneer doesn't think it's really worth his time. Why is he bothering to sell this violin? And so he starts asking for one dollar, two dollars, three dollars. Then he ultimately has it sold for $3,000 or even more. That's how the poem and song ends. But what happens in the midway part that causes this change? Some of you already know. The rest of you will have to wait. But there is something to this reality, tattered and broken, almost seeming like it needs something to happen to it in order to be worth anything at all. And so too, there are people in our text today and there are people in this room who are tattered and broken, who have heartbreak or physical issues or just the reality of the dirty rottenness of sin, staining us, plaguing us. And we need something like what is received in Matthew 9, where Jesus has authority and uses it gently and compassionately to help those in need. Realistically, more so than any other, he uses it to deliver people from physical illnesses directly. So we have our three accounts. This is the strange one of the three accounts of miracles, is that it actually involves three accounts of four miracles. We see how that works with our first account, which has two miracles included. The deliverance of two women in verses 18 through 26. Matthew accomplishes the idea of putting these two miracles as one account by using what is sometimes called a sandwich structure. It's a common way of structuring accounts within the Gospels, of bringing two in comparison to one another. John does it, for instance, with Peter's denial and the trial of Jesus, showing Jesus' faithfulness and Peter's faithlessness in contrast with each other. But you start telling one account, and you interrupt it with, some, with a different account, tell that whole thing, and then keep going on, such that you end up having a sandwich, bread, meat in the middle. Now, I don't really like the idea of calling it a sandwich, as it almost seems to overemphasize the middle portion. 
Because you can't have a sandwich without bread. You're not really eating the sandwich for the bread. So we're going to call this an Oreo structure. And we're going to think about the cookies on either side with the cream in the middle. And so the, the first cookie starts a story about a roller's daughter. We've read it before, we read it now again. Chapter 9, verse 18. While he spake these things unto them, behold, there came a certain ruler and worshipped him, saying, My daughter is even now dead, but come and lay thy hand upon her, and she shall live. And Jesus arose and followed him, and so did his disciples. So he's just finished his understanding of new versus old. And while he is finishing that discussion, a roller comes to him. Probably here a Jewish ruler, a ruler of a synagogue perhaps. He comes and he bows down to him. He has this posture of worship and humility. And he says, my daughter is even now dead. But... Come and lay thy hand upon her, and she shall live. And so Jesus arises and follows him. This ruler is showing a good amount of faith. He's looking at his daughter who's dead. And then he's looking at Jesus, who has healed many people, but up to this point in Matthew has not raised anyone from the dead has not shown that he has authority over death itself. But the ruler comes. It says, if you just touch her, she will live. It reminds us a little bit of how we began in the second miracle in Matthew 8, 5 to 13. As we look at that, we see that there was there a ruler, a centurion in this instance, coming to Jesus, concerned about someone who is in his household, a servant in that instance, and wanting Jesus to heal that servant. You can also hear the differences. Servant versus daughter, Jew versus Gentile. Perhaps most strikingly of all, the faith of the centurion is a faith in Jesus' word and will. You don't have to be there to do anything. Whereas the ruler has the faith in his touch. It's perhaps a lesser faith, but it's faith all the same. That Jesus then responds to by making his way to this ruler's house. But then there's an interruption. But then there's some cream in the middle. Chapter 9, verse 20. And behold, a woman, which was diseased with an issue of blood twelve years, came behind him and touched the hem of his garment. For she said within herself, If I may but touch his garment, I shall be
along the way, a woman comes and touches the hem of his garments, touches the outer fringes of his attire. She has her reasons for this. Verse 20 tells us that she was diseased with an issue of blood 12 years. Some way or another, she's had a hemorrhage. She's been bleeding for 12 years. It is often suggested, and it is often suggested for a pretty decent reason, though we aren't entirely sure, that she was in the middle of 12 years of menstrual bleeding. But one way or another, she was bleeding for 12 years, experiencing that weakness and experiencing, most likely, ritual uncleanness and the accompanying isolation from society. And in 12 years, nothing has resolved her problem. But if she just touches the outer fringes of Jesus' garment, she believes she will be made whole. She believes there is enough purity and cleansing in Jesus that he doesn't need to touch her with the hand. That she just needs to touch the something that is somehow, in some way, associated with him even if it's just the outer fringes of his garment. And so she goes, and she does. But before we move straight on to verse 22, we ought to think about the word that is then translated made whole at the end of verse 21. In some translations, you might read the word saved. Because most times, that's how this Greek word would be translated. In this instance, it doesn't quite have as much of a type of personal salvation as we would typically apply to it. But the New English translation provides in a study note this idea. The author uses the term for being healed that while referring to the woman's physical healing may have special spiritual significance to his readers. It may have be a double entendre, that is, it may have a double meaning. Elsewhere, the evangelist uses verbs that simply mean heal. But here it's different almost suggesting if only his readers will touch Jesus, they too would be saved. So the New English translation is suggesting that the use of the word for salvation here, since it's not what Matthew has done up to this point in describing healing, could be an intentional element to be a double meaning to help us as the readers who've already read that Jesus has the authority to forgive sins and that he's indeed come to save his people from their sins. 
that we'd read it and realize if we are just touched by Jesus, we too would be saved from our sin. As the case may be, in verse 22, she is indeed saved from her sickness. But when Jesus turned him about, and when he saw her, he said, Daughter, be of good comfort. Thy faith hath made thee whole. And the woman was made whole from that hour. Though she was saved at the moment of touch, Matthew delays telling us until Jesus responds. He turns, noticing that someone's touched her. He looks at her and gently says, Daughter, rejoice. Daughter, be of good comfort. Your faith has saved you. And she was saved from that hour. Jesus' touch is the instrument of her healing. But it is still his will in relationship to her faith that heals her and saves her in this manner. And then we go back to the other woman in danger. We go back to the other one who needs delivered, not from the issue of blood for 12 years, but from death. The other cookie in verse 23. And when Jesus came into the ruler's house and saw the minstrels and the people making a noise, he said unto them, Give place, for the maid is not dead, but sleepeth. And they laughed him to scorn. And so here we have two different responses to this death. There are flute players, minstrels, and there are people making a commotion, stirring up quite a noise. Because they're weeping. They're wailing. They understand the tragedy of any death. It's not how it was meant to be. So they're weeping. They're causing a ruckus. But Jesus comes in calmly. Give place. The maid is not dead, but sleepeth. He has a sense to pull out. This is temporary. This death, as all death, is ultimately not the end. He speaks both from the, the perspective of a resurrection that we anticipate now, and in light of what he knows he's about to do. But they laugh at him. They mock him. They scorn him. They are certain that she is dead. That him saying that she sleeps is nothing. And indeed, D.A. Carson might be correct to say, the crowd mocked Jesus not just because he said the girl is not dead but sleeps, but even more because they thought this great healer had arrived too late. And now, he's going too far. 
carried away by his own success. He would try his skill on a corpse and make a fool of himself. But as Matthew keeps going, that's not what happens at all. In verse 25, But when the people were put forth, he went in and took her by the hand, and the maid arose. And the fame hereof went abroad into all that land. They get the crowd that was so raculous and making such a ruckus. They get them to leave the house. There's a private audience as Jesus then just takes her by the hand. And this girl who was dead, who was so certainly dead that people laughed at the idea that she was only sleeping, wakes up. Because Jesus' touch, Jesus has the authority to deliver not just from physical healness, not just from sin, but from death itself. And of course, his fame goes on. It spreads. Regardless of the private audience that's present here, it's hard to keep something like the raising of the dead a secret. And people are talking about it. Then we move from this deliverance of these two women to the deliverance of two blind men in verses 27 through 31. Verse 27. And when Jesus departed thence, two blind men followed him, crying and saying, Thou son of David, have mercy on us. So again, Jesus leaves, he departs, he goes on. And as he goes on, two blind men start following him, following the crowd as they make the noise, and they start calling, yelling, Thou son of David! Certainly not any, just any son of David, but a recognition that he is the son of David the coming Messiah, chosen, anointed one, the coming divine son of David. And they make a request for mercy. Have mercy upon us. Which, again, seems to have a bit of a double meaning. Because for them, they might primarily be referring to having the mercy of seeing again. But for we as the reader, we desire the mercy of Jesus to be forgiven of our sins. To have that authority brought out and active in our own lives and hearts. And so they ask, have mercy on us. And it's interesting, because Jesus does not immediately respond. He just keeps on walking. And the image is that they keep on following him up until he gets to his next destination. Verse 28. And when he was come into the house, the blind men came to him, and Jesus saith unto them, 
believe ye that I am able to do this? And they said unto him, Yea, Lord. Then touched he their eyes, saying, According to your faith, be it unto you. When Jesus does respond to the blind men, he asks one question. He asks about their faith. Do you believe that I am able to do this? And like with the faith of the woman with the issue of blood, like with the faith of the ruler and his daughter, like with the faith of the centurion, they do. They say yes. And it's good, too, because then Jesus says, in accordance to your faith, it will be done to you. Probably not directly just meaning in accordance with how much you believe, that's how much mercy you get. But rather, because you believe, you will receive mercy. You will have your eyes be opened. And so in verse 30, it happens. And their eyes were opened. And Jesus straightly charged them, saying, See that no man know it. But they, when they were departed, spread abroad his fame in all that country. It's because they have faith, their eyes are opened. And we have one of the few places in which, in Matthew's Gospel, Jesus tells the one healed, don't spread this abroad. Don't tell other people that this has just happened. It's happened in a house, not in the open road. It's possible we could keep this a little bit secret. But despite the fact that they had such great faith so that they could be healed, they don't quite stay with Jesus long enough to learn to be obedient to all that he commands. And instead, they go out and they spread abroad his fame in all that area. But what's significant at this point up to here is how Jesus continues to deliver. Delivering from physical illness, delivering from death, delivering from blindness. And it's all because of his touch. It's the one thing that he's consistently talking about and that Matthew's touching on here is that when Jesus touches someone in accordance with their faith, they receive mercy. The woman with an issue of blood is saved by her faith. The ruler's daughter is brought back to life because of the faith of the ruler by Jesus' touch. And the blind men receive their sight. They receive mercy according to their faith when, Jesus's, when Jesus touches their eyes. So what happened to that old violin? Why was it that the violin that was going to be sold at auction for $3 
ended up going for 3,000. The intervening parts of the song and poem say this. From the room far back, a gray-bearded man came forward and picked up the bow, then wiping the dust from the old violin and tightening the string, he played a melody pure and sweet, as sweet as the angel sings. And that's what happens. That means that this old violin doesn't sell for $3. No longer seems like it's not worth the auctioneer's time. Even as it's being sold, there are questions and cries within the song of why is this happening? What changed? And the poem reads, Swift came the reply, the touch of the master's hand. What's saving the woman with the issue of blood? What's raising the ruler's daughter? What is opening the eyes of the blind and allowing them to receive mercy? The touch of the master's hand. And if we too are touched, we too will receive mercy, be saved from our sins, and rise from the dead to eternal life with God the Father. Have faith and accept the touch of the Master's hand. These miracles, as we've seen at the end of this first act, in verse 26, and here again in verse 31, these wonderful miracles, this wonderful displays of deliverance and salvation is causing Jesus to be quite popular. His fame is going out. And these miracles and that fame creates a crisis. It creates a moment of decision that is necessary, which then becomes on display in our third account, in verses 32 to 34. Deliverance demands a decision between two responses. The actual account is pretty short. Verse 32, as they went out, Behold, they brought him a dumb man, possessed with a devil. And when the devil was cast out, the dumb spake. We had a lot of family fun and joking in this building. There's a couple church members were bantering back and forth this week about how some of them, you know, you know, kind of commenting on intelligence and saying, well, that person said, you know, maybe, maybe you're just a little, little dumb here. <laughs> Didn't quite get to make the comments at the time. But I don't think that particular individual had any trouble speaking. 
which is the reality of the dumbness present here. This man cannot speak because he is possessed with a devil. But Jesus has authority over demons. So he comes, he casts out the demon. And so the mute man, the dumb man, speaks. And then that creates then a contrast in responses. The rest of verse 33 And the multitudes marvel, saying, It was never so seen in Israel. Which again reminds us of the centurion in his faith, because Jesus says in Matthew chapter 8, verse 10, Verily I say unto you, I have not found so great faith, no, not in Israel. But here it is the crowd who's looking at Jesus' authority and saying, we haven't seen this type of authority in Israel. It seems like an overblown response to the particular miracle that isn't really said in too much detail and seems like a pretty normal exorcism. But it would be an awfully good response to all of chapters 8 and 9 as the crowning of those type, the, that reality of the, um, the authority being on display. It was never so seen in Israel. They respond in awe. And ultimately that awe should compel them to the faith that we've seen on display in the centurion the ruler, the woman with the issue of blood, and the two blind men. The power that has not been seen in Israel demands an explanation. And it could be the explanation that this is the divine Son of God who is under authority and therefore has authority. Or it could be the explanation given by the Pharisees in verse 34. But the Pharisees said, He casteth out devils through the prince of the devils. They just think it's a trick. They're just going to blaspheme, speak evil of Jesus, speak evil of the spirit by which he works, by whom he works. They are going to attribute the power not to God, but to Satan. And with all respect to C.S. Lewis and his trilemma, I think these two options are the ones that we have when confronted by Jesus' miracles. Can't have him be a good human teacher. Can't really even say that he's just being a crazy man. Crazy men don't really do this type of miracles. But as C.S. Lewis would say, we have to acknowledge him as either a lord or a liar. His power has to either come from God, leading us to worship him and come to him in faith so that we can be saved by his touch, or come from the devil. 
And those are the two choices then that I lay before you today. And I plead with you, accept the fact that it comes from God. Join with me and this church in recognizing Jesus as the Son of God and come to him, come to the touch of the Master's hand and be saved. Receive mercy and the forgiveness of sins. Father, we ask that you would help us to rejoice in these realities more and more today. Allow us to go from here just in awe of who you are and who your son is and the authority that he has demonstrated and the gentleness in his desire to forgive sins. He died so that our sins could be forgiven because otherwise the punishment would still come upon us. So Lord, direct us, guide us to rejoice evermore in this reality. And I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to Aroma for Christ, sermons from the pulpit of the Fostoria Baptist Church. Do you remember 2 Corinthians 2, 15-16? For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one a fragrance from death to death, to the other a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? <laughs>